0: Well, Welcome to you guys again. Uh, a few of you guys have popped on since we started, so we're, we're glad that you came on. Um, it's really good to see so many of you on the Zoom call. And uh, this morning, I, I kind of want to start by just mentioning the value um, and, and the importance of taking time uh, to process God's Word. And, and so, as you hear it read this morning, as you hear me doing my best to, to, to illuminate it for you. And as you read along with me through the digital bulletin, I just want to challenge you to not end uh, your consumption of God's Word an hour from now, uh, but to continue mulling over God's Word throughout the week, to, to journal about it, to, to talk to your spouse or your roommates or your discipleship group or your family group about it, to take time to meditate on it. And the reason why I want to encourage us as a church to do this is because God's word is, is living and it's active and, and it may take time for it to do work. Uh, this is something that I experience almost every time I sit down and engage uh, with sermon text because I'm, I'm kind of forced to spend a lot of time in scripture. And, and that experience is so much different than just kind of flipping through a daily Bible reading and then checking it off in my app and then moving on. And, and so I've seen in my own life just the, the, the hardness sometimes and, and just taking the time to, to let the word do its work in me. So refrain from being quickly frustrated uh, and, and, and dig into it especially as we work through some of these uh, more challenging uh, themes in the book of Romans. So um, give God's word the time and the space in your life um, to renew and to transform your mind. And so you'll see if if you pull up the digital bulletin, there are some questions there um, for further application. And so my challenge to you and even to myself and to our family uh, is to take time this week, whether that's in your personal quiet time or a conversation, again, with your spouse or a roommate or a friend, um, to talk about these questions and, and engage with them and continue thinking about these concepts we're gonna be talking about today. All right, so let's jump in. Um, Last week, Robert preached on God's wrath. Uh, In the latter portion of Romans 1, uh, what Paul does is he he outlines the lifestyle of those who reject God um, and, and in their relationship Uh, in their worship disorder, and that is like not worshiping God as they were designed to do, but worshiping themselves or other things. Um, And and he looks at how that manifests itself in their lives. And the way that it manifests itself is even more disorder inside their lives. And so Paul describes the unnatural state of humans in their sin as they live out their lives in, in contrast to the natural or the ordered way that God had designed and created us to live. And so in this disobedience toward God, um, as evidenced by how they're living, right? So there's just blatant and shameless immorality that, that, that is in their lives. And also how they feel about that, uh, which is they're, they're approving their sinful uh, lifestyles to other people around them. Um, they really have no remorse for it. Um, in this place, they are underneath God's righteous wrath. And that's what Robert talked about last week. And, and that's a terrifying place to be. And so as we read into chapter two, Paul turns his attention um, away from those, those people. And and he kind of folds in a whole nother group of people uh, who are destined for the same outcome of God's wrath, even though they might not be uh, convinced uh, that they are, that they actually are convinced otherwise, that that they're not under God's wrath. So those first uh, three verses here, I'm going to reread. Starting in verse 1, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So Paul switches from talking about them to talking about you. So from those who are shamelessly immoral sinners to you, the hearer of these words. And what does he say? He says that, uh, that you, like those who are running around in blatant sin uh, over there, um, are not going to be able to escape the judgment of God. And so you can imagine, as the hearer of these words, uh, the original hearers, the Romans, it, they would have kind of straightened up in their seat a little bit as they heard Paul uh, sp- uh, saying these things to them. Because many of them, being uh, rule-following Jews or uh, mostly moral people, um, that's really who this section is aimed toward, would have kind of relaxed in their seats a bit as Paul uh, reveals the fate of those overtly sinful people in the verses before this. And we ourselves may have maybe experienced some of this ourselves last week. Uh, We ourselves... Uh, as, as we're hearing this and and this isn't all of us but maybe some of us as we're hearing that list of sins that Paul is rattling off are a little bit relieved that we're not directly guilty of any of those like maybe a little bit of envy but we're not full of envy and murder and deceit and maliciousness like that's not describing me right I'm, I may gossip a little bit but I'm not like a gossip right I certainly haven't invented any evil. These are some of the things that that Paul is talking about in the previous uh, verses. I'm not heartless. I'm not ruthless. I'm not as bad as them. One of the things that I think we often do as humans is we rationalize or diminish our own sinfulness uh, and shortcomings in light of other people's sin. So we're very quick to be critical about the flaws of others uh, while being often blind to our own. Um, and, and this pride is something that's pretty common. and, and Paul calls it out here uh, and, and says that it's also, it's also damning. What Paul is saying is when when you, the reader, the hearer of these words, judge someone else in their sin, you're pronouncing judgment on yourself. It's like, if you've ever experienced this, it's like you're driving on the highway, right? Uh, and you see someone who's just whizzing past you, like driving ridiculously fast. And then you see someone someone else with bright blue and red lights driving after them, right? So it's a police officer chasing after them. Um, and, and, and I've literally done this, um, right? Like when they're driving really fast and you kind of like cheer on the cop. You're like, yes, right? Because there's like a moment of justice in that. Right, and then this person uh, is is kind of experiencing the wrath that they deserve by being chased down because they're driving really fast. And uh, and what happens though is that like as you're doing this, and I've experienced this, like you look down at the speedometer and you realize you're speeding as well, right? Like you're going ten over the speed limit uh, as you're cheering on this police officer who's chasing someone down for speeding. In that moment, you're you're just as guilty. Uh, and know better than than the other person. Yet you've positioned yourself in such a way that that you look down at them uh, while you excuse yourself in your own speeding. You say to yourself, "I'm only going ten miles an over uh, ten miles an hour over," and this other person's going fifty miles an hour over. And 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 it's that hypocrisy though. And and in that moment of judging them for being a lawbreaker, you're actually condemning yourself as a lawbreaker. And so the reason why judgment is self-condemning is because in our judgment of others, we're acknowledging, and in some case even cheering on, (laughs) the righteous judgment of God against all unrighteousness. And we forget that though our sin may not be of the same caliber or the same magnitude as those people over there, Paul says in Romans 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so the delusion is that our judgment of sin in others might somehow make us like immune to God's judgment ourselves. That we kind of slip onto the other side of the bench, so to speak. We're kind of like leaning onto the judgment seat with God as we, as we point out the sin in others and create that space between those people who are sinning and us over here. But look at verse 3. He asks this question. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? The point that Paul is making here is that no one escapes judgment. Not the blatant godless sinner who endorses their sinful behavior and lifestyle to those around them, and not the moral religious hypocrite who judges the sin of others while they themselves are, are full of sin. And so no one likes talking about judgment, trust me. So even as I'm preparing for this, I'm having to really force myself to lean into some areas of uncomfortableness, um, areas that I don't fully understand and know. Um, and, and so even the idea of, of this inevitable judgment, right? Having all of my actions, all of my intentions laid bare uh, is a buzzkill to say the least. It's not the most encouraging thing on the surface to be meditating on. It made me think of a time, I think it was in fourth or fifth grade, and I got in trouble at school. I don't remember what I got in trouble for. Uh, It could have been a myriad of things. But at that time, I got in trouble. And so the principal, I remember, the principal calls my home uh, and talks to my mother. And so all day, like I'm dreading talking to my mother and facing that judgment. I remember going to an after school program that day which kind of prolonged the the gap of judgment before i had to experience judgment uh, and then i had our babysitter pick me up and and i think we did some stuff it was one of those days that my mom was working late and and i remember just this impending judgment dragging on and on and i remember feeling the fear of knowing that i did something wrong uh, knowing that my mom knew about it and then just imagining all the ways that my mother could end my life once I saw her later that day. And so throughout the day, like I kept trying to play, like trying to do things to, to not think about it, kind of push it off in my mind. But but the fear, kind of the anxiety was always there until that night when I had to finally face the music and see my mom. I think many of us might have this, this view toward biblical judgment. And sometimes we'll see it and we kind of read quickly past it in our reading plan. Uh, we'll, we'll likely just let our minds wander. Maybe if someone's preaching about it, like right now, like our, our minds are like, oh, let's think about other stuff or kind of focusing on other things that are going on in life. And so I was really encouraged by something that I read in commentary this week on this passage. John Stott says, The good news of salvation shines forth brightly when it, is set, when it is seen against the dark background of divine judgment. We cheapen the gospel if we represent it as deliverance only from unhappiness, fear, guilt, and other felt needs, instead of as a rescue from the coming wrath. And so as uncomfortable as it may feel, I just want to encourage us to really lean in here and to talk about judgment. Uh, In in talking uh, about a day where God's judgment will be revealed, Paul writes, starting in verse 6, he, and this is God, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So as we talk about judgment, I think there are three things, three important things to understand about God's judgment that we're seeing in this passage. The first is that God judges everyone. So there's really no way around this one. Um, It's the point of of Paul's question earlier, namely that there's no way to get out of judgment, um, not by judging others and living a relatively moral life, not by being Jewish, not by being a Christian. No one escapes the judgment of God. And we see this in other places as well. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Um, I, this isn't in your digital bulletin, but you can look it up. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul there is saying we all must appear, not some of us, uh, every single person. So that's one thing to note. The second thing is that God judges everyone equally. And so verse 11 right there that I just, I'm sorry, verse 11 from Romans chapter 2 says that there's no partiality. So another word for that is favoritism. Um, As Paul lays out the result of judgment in verses 9 through 10, uh, the bad results of tribulation and distress will be available for every human being and the good results of glory, honor, peace will also be available for every human being. So God is just in his judgment of all people, and the third thing is that God's judgment uh, will be based on what we've done, uh, including our intentions for the things that we've done. And so you see this in in, in uh, verse ten of Second Corinthians chapter five, where he says, "For for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that everyone may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil." Now, this is where we need to pause for a second and, and kind of further clarify um, some concepts in theology. It, it, is Paul flip-flopping here? Um, in chapter 1, he's saying that the righteous live by faith, not, not by works. So there's no accounting of what you do when it comes to this idea of salvation. Uh, that right standing before God is, is through faith in Jesus Christ, not by good moral living and obedience to the law. Is he now saying that the righteous are, are going to live by works? So salvation is through faith. This would be consistent with what Paul has already communicated. And so when you believe and you put your faith in the saving work of Jesus uh, and what he did on the cross, you receive salvation as a gift. Uh, But faith that saves then produces good works in the life of that person. So one way that this can be illustrated is in a loving relationship, a relationship of love. Where there can be feelings and words of love, but then also acts of love. So I can tell my daughter Chloe I love her. I can tell myself that I love her. But but if I neglect her with my actions, if I don't spend time with her, if I don't talk to her, if I don't care for her, if I don't fight for her, it seriously does put into question my said love for her. Why is that? Well, because an evidence of genuine love is the overflow of actions of love. And so it's not to be understood the other way around as well, which is, uh, and it would have been common, uh, a common misconception of Paul's day, and even for us today, that that living a moral life um, does not produce salvation as if salvation is something that could be earned. Good works do not produce salvation. And what Paul's getting at is that true salvation received through faith in Christ is then going to produce good works. This is a critical point, and, and it's consistent with how Paul articulates the gospel. So how do these verses make sense if, if salvation is by faith, yet we're still going to be judged and uh, in some cases benefit from the good works that we do and seemingly punish for doing bad things? It's because Paul is describing, uh, what he's describing is not how salvation happens. So he, he does that earlier in chapter one, uh, but he's describing how salvation or lack thereof plays out. So he, he's not talking about the recipe for salvation. Uh, it, it's more of what you see when you open the oven, so to speak. So you have a recipe, you either follow it or you don't, you put it in the oven, you open it up. And what you're going to see when you open that oven is going to be evidence of whether or not that recipe was followed. And so the recipe is in chapter 1. Here, what Paul does in these verses, it, it, he examines the saved and the unsaved uh, by talking about what each one seeks and aims after in life, what each one does in their life, uh, and then also what they get in the end. And the way that Paul lays out uh, in these, uh, these verses in 7 through 10, it, it's actually really simple. So he says that what you get in the end— is consistent with what you're seeking after and what you do in life. So what you get in the end is consistent with what you seek and what you do in your life. What he says is for those that are saved, that have received the gospel through faith, in the end, they're going to receive eternal life, glory, honor, peace. And their aim in life is to seek the glory of God and in eternal fellowship with God. and so they do good. And so they live not not disordered and unnatural, uh, unnaturally in their sinfulness, but because they seek God and His goodness, they live good, ordered lives and receive in the end what they're actually seeking after. And that is what the life of, of a saved person looks like. And co- in contrast to that, for the unsaved person, uh, who in the end will receive wrath, uh, fury, tribulation, and distress, they spend their lives seeking, verse 8 says, uh, themselves. That, uh, that They're not living ordered holy lives in obedience to God, but verse 8, uh, obeying unrighteousness, living disorderedly. Again, what Paul is providing here is not the recipe for salvation, but, but a diagnostic overview of the human condition. And this helps us understand salvation, not as this one-time spiritual moment that lets us get back to our normal lives without any guilt or shame, but, but as entrance into an ongoing, eternal relationship with God. When, when we're saved, truly saved, uh, we want God. <laughs> when, when a person experiences salvation, they want God. Uh, We want to be with God. We want to be holy like God. We want to live the way that God designed us to live uh, in this world, in an ordered and good way, not in the disorder of sin. But if we haven't experienced salvation, uh, if we haven't experienced and received the gospel, if if, if there isn't any forgiveness or grace that's being received by faith, then why would we want God? I, I think that's what paul is getting at here it uh not that their actions condemn them right these the people who who reject god not that just their actions condemn them but um their their actions are actually reflecting the rejection of god in their hearts and now this doesn't mean that if you have sin in your life um, that you should question your salvation or be afraid that you lost it and so one of the last sermons I preached in our previous sermon series uh, was on Galatians 5, and it talked about how as we as, we, uh, we as Christians are still living in the flesh, so not yet fully restored. And so while we have right standing before God, there's still this wrestling with old fleshy and sinful desires and temptations until we're fully made new. And even here, Paul writes in verse 4, or do you not or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What Paul is saying is that God's kindness and his forbearance it is not meant to be understood as license to sin or an excuse to sin. It's meant to give us space and the opportunity to repent of our sin, to turn away from our sin, to seek order in, in godly living and not to continue in the disorder of godless living. So even here, Paul is acknowledging that repentance is a part of the Christian life here on earth. And for repentance to happen, there has to be sin to repent of. And so this passage should not make you question your salvation just because you have sin in your life. But I would I would say that this passage should make you question your salvation. I know that might sound kind of harsh, but and maybe I'm the first person that's saying this to you, but I just want to say it is okay to question your salvation. In fact, I think that if done in a healthy way, it can help identify areas of sin and reassure you of what your greatest hope is. And so the the exhortation, the encouragement from a Christian to a Christian is not to never think about your salvation, like never wrestle with it, never question it, but it's okay to engage with it. And one of the ways that you can do this is by asking these diagnostic questions, kind of honestly and truthfully to yourself, uh, even in conversation with those that you trust. The first question would be, what do I seek ultimately? What do I seek ultimately in life? Is it God or is it myself? Is it the glory of God or is it the glory of myself? Is it, is it just Comfort in knowing who God is or comfort in my own personal experience? So that's one question to kind of run as a diagnostic that would be healthy for your relationship with God, which is what do I seek ultimately in life? And then two, thinking about how do my actions reflect what I seek ultimately? Are the decisions that I'm making on a regular basis um, showing that I am seeking God ultimately or that I'm seeking myself? Are my goals and my plans, the way that I've laid out the next 10, 15, 20 years, reflecting that my ultimate uh, thing that I seek is God or the ultimate thing that I seek is either myself or something in this world? So these are important questions to ask. I I would encourage you to do so. Um, if there is a too long don't read like if you're just joining us right now and you want to be caught up in the whole previous section here what I'd say um, is that people who are saved worship and seek God and live transformed lives full of obedience to God with good works so that's what the saved person looks like people who are unsaved uh, worship and seek themselves and live in obedience to unrighteousness and remain enslaved to sin And so the saved person is going to get what they seek. They're going to get eternal life with God, glory, honor, and peace. And the saved person gets what they deserve for their unrighteous living, which is the wrath and the fury of God for all of eternity. So as I say that, as you hear that, know that there is a seriousness to the gospel. So understanding these realities helps us really understand the urgency which Paul and the early apostles and church planners had What's at stake with the gospel is a spiritual reality with eternal and horrific ramifications. This is the, the bad news of the gospel, that in our sin we deserve wrath, and we will get what we deserve, which is eternal separation from a holy God, our, our creator. Now we get to enter the actual good news of the gospel And this is the reason we have joy and hope as Christians is that even though we all will experience judgment for our actions, we receive our justification, our rightness before God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the judgment for our sin as it relates to our eternal trajectory uh, was done on the cross as Jesus bore the weight of our sin and, and he absorbed the wrath and the fury that we in our sin deserve. And we are justified by Jesus' death, being given his perfect righteousness, restoring our hearts and our souls back to God. So if you're not a Christian this morning and you're hearing this, know that this good news is offered to you. That the wrath of God that that you deserve, that maybe you're feeling the weight of this morning, past couple weeks going through this sermon series, has been absorbed by Jesus Christ, God's son on the cross. And so you can receive that today. And God, I pray that you would. And, and I don't care if you're listening to this and you've been at church for decades. If this is the first time you're understanding salvation to work like this, then receive it. Ask God to, 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 to transform your heart and put your faith and trust in Jesus. If, if that's something that you want to do, if you want to talk to somebody about that, we have a form on our website. And this seems sterile, but it does connect you with the real person. So you can go to mercyhouse365.org respond. And that page does lay out in greater detail what it means uh, to receive salvation. And it allows you to, to get connected with someone uh, in our church family to talk with if, if that's what you'd like to do. So I encourage you to do that if you're making that type of decision today uh, to do that. Go to mercyhouse365.org respond respond oh i see it linked in the chat perfect mercy house even with this good news um those of us who who have been justified by christ we will still experience judgment and the good news is that this this judgment does not determine our eternal destination because that's already been determined on the cross for those of us who have put our faith in jesus christ Uh, but will be awarded for the good work and the fruit of our lives. I honestly have no idea what this looks like. I'm not sure what we'll receive. Um, I have some speculations. Maybe it's some sort of heavenly cryptocurrency called angel bucks. I, I often allude to this if you've ever hung out with me. Um, but I, I'm not exactly sure how this plays out. But the reality is that you will be rewarded for living faithful lives to Jesus, obeying his commandments, and fighting to do good in your life. I think John Piper puts it really well. He kind of paints a picture that helped me at least conceptualize what this moment of judgment is going to look like for those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus. He says this: he says picture this. God has a file on every person, uh, uh, and we see this in in, in the in Revelation uh, chapter 20 verse 12. All you've ever done or said is recorded there with a grade from A to F. So when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that's what we mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5.10, uh, to be judged for all that you have done in the body, whether good or evil, God is going to open up the file and he's going to lay out their tests with all of the different grades. And so he'll pull out all of the Fs and he'll put them in a pile. And then he'll take out all the Ds and all the Cs and he'll put the good parts of that test in one place and He'll put uh, he'll put them with the As and then he'll put out... He'll take the bad parts and put them with the F's. And then he'll take out all of the B's and the A's. And he'll take the, the the bad parts out of those and put them in the F pile. And he'll put all the good parts in the A pile. And then he will open another book, the the book of life. And he'll find your name because you are in Christ through faith. Behind your name will be a wood stick match made from the cross of Jesus. He will take the match, light it, and set it. The F pile with all of your failures and all of your deficiency on fire and burn them up. They will not condemn you. They will not reward you. Then he will take from your book of life file a sealed envelope marked free and gracious bonus life. And he'll put it on the A pile. And then he will hold up the entire pile and he'll declare by this your life bears witness to the grace of my father. The worth of of my blood and the fruit of my spirit. These bear witness that your life is eternal. And according to these, you will have your rewards enter into the everlasting joy of your master. So that is for those who have put their faith and their trust in God that the bad things, the sinfulness in your life, the things that you do or don't do, the the the, the intentions of your hearts, they will be accounted for. So there's no getting around that, but they will not condemn you. This is a, a beautiful, <laughs> sweet uh, and a moment where I can just say thank God, right? I think a lot of us like you get to you get to this point where you're like, wait, I'm gonna be mi- bi- just completely made bare before God. He's gonna know everything that I've done. He's gonna see every nook and cranny of my brokenness. Uh, and 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 there's gonna be a moment where I have to be accountable to that. And the answer is yes. But then the next moment is is that none of these things are going to be held against you. They're not going to condemn you. And that is uh, the incredible gospel, the good news for those who put their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us now. Father, you are a holy and just God. Um you see all, and you know all things. And in a world where it's just so easy to, to show the best part of ourselves and to hide the worst part of ourselves, um, we are naked before you, God. You know everything we do. You know the reasoning and the intentions behind everything that we do. You even know the things that we purposely don't do, God. There's nothing that we can hide from you. And and so with such vulnerability, um, can come fear and anxiety, even terror, God. And as we stand by ourselves before you in our sin, we are not worthy of your holy presence. God, we we confess that we deserve wrath um, and that there's nothing in our lives um, that merits right standing before you. But God, we thank you and we worship you for giving us a means to be made holy, God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to take on your wrath and your fury uh, that we ourselves deserve and that he did not. Jesus, we just thank you for paying the debt of our sin, even at the cost of your own life. We thank you that this is all completely free, that it's a free gift of grace. And so, God, we ask that you would transform our lives, uh, that you would give us hearts that desire you and seek you that you would give us the strength and the endurance to do good. And, and I pray for our church that we would persevere in the faith um, through easy seasons and, and hard pandemic lockdown digital church-only seasons, God. We pray that you would sustain our faith, uh, God, because we can't do this alone. So, Father, we thank you. We love you. And, um, God, help us to, to love you more and more each day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.